We pour all the money and wait until it amounts to 12,000 euro. That's a one-year basic income, a thousand a month. And then we draw a winner. 18,800 people registered online and were given a virtual raffle ticket. You can check it all on our website. And there's a large wheel of fortune in the studio. Give it a bit spin. This is an exciting phase. In 2014, we raffled five basic incomes of 1,000 euros a month for five lucky winners. Now we have a new bigger goal. We want to finance 100 basic incomes by using two things. First, this is a loyalty card. You show it as you pay for things in shops. That way you accumulate points or credit, which is worth some money. Everyone has the same card and the credit flows into one bank account. This gives us 50 euros a day towards the basic income. It doesn't cost the card users anything, and it's completely anonymous. Second, we have an internet version for web shops. They have a button. You click it, and a commission of the sale goes into this basic income kitty. It's like a tiny consumer tax. In the future, we could probably use it to finance a basic income. We already do this on a small scale, 1% to 5% per transaction. We got more than 20,000 euro in the last three months. Und so kamen in den letzten drei Monaten schon über 20.000 Euro zusammen. Aber wer zahlt das? But who pays for that in the end? Naja, es zahlen die Unternehmen. Well, the shops pay for it. For them, it's advertising, so to speak, to encourage customers into the shop. But I think the customers always buy there anyway. And this is a chance for them to do something worthwhile as they do. This is a completely unconditional basic income for anyone. There are no rules about age or country. Even children can register. The fifth basic income was put up for raffle, and it went to eight-year-old Robin from Baden-Württemberg. After a marathon debate lasting two days, his parents decided to tell him. I'm rich. We're using it to go on holiday and to pay the rent and we get a new book once a month. We talk about basic income, but not money itself. We want to grant ourselves a little bit of freedom and ask ourselves what will happen if we feel more free and relaxed. Worrying about money never got me anywhere. I could let go. I felt much better. We don't save it. We live off it. I thought, why not? If I can do okay for one year, that's a damn good thing. And we see Michel Baumeier walking into a warehouse of soft drinks, and there's a pile of cases marked Mittercola, Generation Grundeinkommen, Basic Income Generation, and he holds up a bottle of cola. With the slogan, what would you work at if you already had a basic income? I know there's a lot of material in research. 
But other people are better at that ich möchte es die Geschichten zu erzählen. Ich möchte das erlebbar zu machen. Ich möchte I just want to tell the story and make it come alive. No dull political debate about how great it would be. I want people to click now, donate now, and get a basic income next month. Wir müssen die Gesellschaft verändern. Wir müssen die Gesellschaft so umbauen, dass wir nicht change society so everyone can be comfortable. That requires security and unconditional love. It's what babies need when they want to be held. We can't hold all the adults, but 1,000 euros a month is a start to relieve the pressure so people can believe in themselves again. I'm a father myself, and I see a lot of parallels with having children. Children are most cooperative and thrive the best when they feel safe. Kinder sind dann besonders close to their parents and when they are free to cry if they fail. All the things we as adults are no longer allowed to do. in der Nähe sind und wenn sie zum Beispiel auch mal weinen können, wenn sie auch mal scheitern können, all das, was wir Erwachsenen gar nicht mehr dürfen. Michael's project My Basic Income now provides eight people with a basic income. But what would happen if you gave an entire community a basic income? Guy Standing is an economist and a strong advocate of basic income. He's involved in several experiments in developing countries and has recently finalized one in India. For 30 years or more, I don't want to reveal the full extent of these dreams, I've always been advocating and supporting moving towards a basic income. And it's very, very rare that any of us ever have the uh, opportunity to put a dream into potential reality. 6,000 people in India were given a guaranteed basic income for a period of 18 months, unconditionally, individually and paid in cash. The men get 200 rupees, the women get 200 rupees. The children's money goes into the mother's bank account. You will receive 200 rupees a month, unconditionally. You are free to decide how to use it. The striking thing that we found was improved nutrition and improved health. The level of economic activity increased in all the villages. The level of earned income, that's apart from the basic income, increased significantly more in these villages. We did not provide any skills training. We did not provide any guidance because we wanted to see what happens when you're doing a basic income. I think the only way to make progress is that through pilots on a small scale, that if they're successful, they can be built up. Um, we desperately need to find ways of redistributing income because the degree of inequality, whether it's in the Netherlands or it's Britain or in, in India, I mean, is, has become obscene, obscene. All the old forms of redistribution, income tax, social security, don't work in, in a globalized, open economic system. Literally millions of Europeans are living on the edge of unsustainable debt. They're living on the edge of not knowing whether that tomorrow morning or the next day they're going to have the means to pay for their absolute essentials. And, and we've got a situation where 
that insecurity is corrosive on our mental health, on our relationships, our capacity to function, and and we're creating a society with the precariat growing, which is becoming dangerous in the sense that it's the, the simmering disquiet and simmering social illnesses that are, are, are building up. And it, it's got to the point now where I think that unless we have reforms towards a more universalistic approach, a rights-based approach, away from means testing, away from behaviour testing, away from all these assessment forms that poor many people have to fill in. Unless we can say, ooh, let's wake up and move, some, move to a better direction, then we're going to build up a society where to talk of social solidarity it will become a bad joke. Guy Standing travels all over the world to share his experiences and to find partners who are willing to experiment further at local level. He's been invited to speak in Groningen in order to help develop an experiment with people on welfare. Joop Rubruck and Jan-Willem Wennekes are members of MIS, the Community for the Innovation of Economics and Society. It's a group of interested entrepreneurs and scientists from Groningen. They are keen to actually start an experiment in one specific neighbourhood of the city of Groningen. Hello. Hi. Mr. Nice Standing, welcome nice to the Netherlands. Welcome nice to the Netherlands. Hi, guys. Nice What's your name? Joop. Joop? Yeah, Jan Willem. Jan Willem. Nice to meet you. Can take one. Okay. So you yeah, it's two. cold. Yes. Let's go. <laughs> Typical Dutch weather. Yeah, very Dutch. <laughs> okay. Waiting. Um, yesterday was a very busy day for me. So you're both from Groningen, right? Yeah, well, uh, I studied here. Oh, okay. And I, uh, I lived there since uh, one year. If I understand it rightly, it's a sort of uh, strong socialist area or yes. yeah, left. It yeah, area. it has a strong socialist background. The Dutch welfare state was actually one of the most developed welfare states. But the last 20 years... It's really developing into a... Workfare uh, state. Yes. Yeah. The time that you get a, an unemployment benefit is becoming shorter and shorter. Uh, means tests everywhere uh, appear in the system. And it's a much more dis- disciplinary system. It became really a disciplinary right. system. Setting up a social experiment in the Western world is a complicated matter. The challenge lies in the fact that we have a complex social security system in place. This needs to be dismantled before we can set up a new one. The authorities are stuck. We don't think there will be any movement there. If we use our head, there are opportunities for experimenting to find valid solutions, and we are starting that up.
Jan Willem Wennekes. Wat we bedacht hebben is om kleinschalige experimenten te doen in bijvoorbeeld steden. We are planning small-scale experiments in villages or city districts with unconditional assistance. bijstand bijvoorbeeld. For people already on welfare or entitled to welfare but that couldn't face applying for it. Het maar die hem nu niet aanvragen vanwege alle regeltjes. If you can exempt these people from all the obligations, it may have an interesting effect. Dwang, zeg maar, en dan zou je ook interessante effecten kunnen gaan meten. A meeting of experts is taking place on this topic in an ancient water tower. Together with Guy Standing, an alderman of the city of Groningen and a few scientists, the experts discuss a proposal for an experiment with unconditional welfare in Groningen. I think if you take a community of 2,000, mm-hmm. then you're going to have a very good experiment. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm, I'm confident that you would have a, a very good experiment. And then, then you can test the, 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 the effects, both the effects for the individual, effects for the community, a sense of solidarity and types of work. And, and, and those things have, can be studied at a community level. And I think when we set up experiments in Dutch cities, we should not neglect this social dynamic. I think it should be a starting point. There are several districts that have that are low-income districts that have a lot of unemployment. In this area of uh, Bayern, there's uh, some uh, area called the Hoogte, which is here, and we have uh, some uh, like the Indian neighborhood mm-hmm. is here. In the Netherlands, there's been a new uh, law. I mean, you can. Tell a bit about it, maybe. The participation law. And basically, it's a sort of decentralization where the local government has more authority or ways to work with this. Local governments are allowed to experiment uh, with the aim of uh, finding better practices, uh, being more efficient, uh, but also um, uh, stimulating people to, to leave benefits and to, to, see, to seek employment. So just to, to summarize, to get clear for myself here, uh, you're saying if you, um, uh, you take a geographically bordered area, and you say well, everybody in that area who is on social assistance is now treated the same way via yes. uh, for example unconditional, unconditional uh, yeah. uh, assistance then that would res- uh, give interesting results yes. for the yes. sake of research. Absolutely. We the scientists can decide on uh, the, the evaluation of the experiment. Yeah. But uh, f- First things first I think, but it all depends on uh, getting clearance of the, the, the politics, mm. politicians to do the experiments. Uh, when I think about experiments, I, I'm, well, maybe a bit rough, roughly uh, said, I, 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 I don't bother about what politicians tell me what you can and you cannot do. It's also political will and political courage, courage. which is needed. Yeah. And I often say, I'm also chairman of two rekenkamers, and I say to the wethouders, in this time of decentralization, you should do also this to Den Haag. The speaker holds up a solitary middle finger. That's what we are not allowed, and I think we should very much look at You are never allowed. You are never allowed to change the system if you want to change. We should look beyond the law. Beautiful love, you're a mystery. Beautiful love, what have you done to me? Relatie, arbeid en inkomen 
dat is een oude relatie. Hè? Betaald werk, dat levert inkomen op. Nou, wij denken, en dat zie je ook, dat betaald werk... The link between labor and income is an old one. Toegankelijk is. Paid labor creates an income, but what we see now is that it's not available to everyone, and it's not constant, and worse, that it makes unpaid work invisible and undervalued. Voluntary work, looking after the sick and handicapped, raising children. So we say, remove the link. Your income is guaranteed. Betaalde arbeid, and you'll see at the other end that all types of labor, die, die paid or unpaid, will be much more equal and get much more attention. If people are free to choose, they'll start doing what needs to be done. That's much more important than seeing everything in terms of paid labor, which is the underlying problem. A lot of the things we do are undervalued. So we say... Look at the social value of what people do and reward it, but not with money. Everyone is entitled to a basic income. It's a civil right. Everyone has the right to live a normal life and get the things they need to be happy. Why should we deny people that right just because they can't find big work? Do they need a constant reminder that they are losers? Of course not. Omdat ze geen betaald werk kunnen Politicians cannot guarantee paid work for everybody. We see that every day, so we should forget that notion. De politici kunnen ons niet meer garanderen dat iedereen betaald werk heeft. Dat blijkt elke dag weer. Dus moeten ze dat idee gewoon loslaten. Who are these people living in this kind of insecurity? Guy Standing has come up with a new term for them, the precariat. The word combines precarious with proletariat and represents a growing number of people who live in a state of permanent uncertainty about their social and economic well-being. If you're up here in the income sale and the salariat and, and the elite, you have total security. If you're down in the precariat, you have none. You are desperate. You have no security at all. You have to do what somebody tells you you have to do. So a struggle for the redistribution of security is fundamental to it. Now, for a transformation to happen, the emerging mass class must start to identify itself as that. A sense of recognition. So instead of somebody looking in the mirror in the morning and seeing a failure seeing an incompetent person. Moving from that to looking in the mirror in the morning and saying, wait a minute, I'm one of millions. The structures are creating these circumstances and I belong to a group. I am part of the precariat. And there's some beautiful shots of the free cafe in Groningen. Teams of volunteers doing various food serving type activities. And the speaker is Frans Kerwa. What I zelf nu merk is, op het moment dat ik stress heb over geld, 
What I feel is that when I'm stressed out about money, it changes my outlook on the world. I'm much more mistrustful. I tend to label people much more quickly. I think things like, yeah, yeah, easy for you to say with your income. So I have this quite miserable way of looking at people around me. Even though there's no reason really. And it would be much more pleasant to assume that most people are honest and honorable, which is probably true. And most people are altruistic, or at least try to have a good life together. We are trying to crowdfund for the basic income. For one person? No, no, no. Uh, yeah, not for one person. It's uh, we f- we found the idea in uh, Berlin. There's this guy. He uh, he made it for the seventh person to get a basic income. The same idea we want to start now here in Holland. And well, Mislap, uh, uh, yeah, well, no. I said I would do it. <laughs> I will be the first candidate. <laughs> Okay, so if you... So I'll get very rich, Rachel! You'll get very, very rich. What are you going to do with your money? Yeah, this is a strange thing. Uh, I don't think I do very different things. I want to do these things. I do. I'm, I'm, I'm busy with here, with Tyne in the Stad. Now I'm busy with... I'm trying to do something for the free cafe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I feel these urge that are the things I have to do. It's just like what you are doing. It's natural to do these things you you are now doing. Groningen has a green hub called the Garden in the City. Each Wednesday and Sunday it hosts a free cafe, where free meals are served made from rescued food. The main problem is that in this country, the saying, if a man will not work, he shall not eat, is translated as, you must have a paid job. But I think, I work for my food, but I just don't get paid. There was a time when I made lots of money and never worried about it. Then we had the financial crisis and I lost some clients. I made a living as a copywriter, but I was fed up sitting at the desk all day. I love doing this and I think it's valuable, but there's no money in it. Garden the city attracts a lot of people. Some have jobs. Many are on social security. Some have a psychiatric history. Some have burnout. We have disabled people, young people, old people. We welcome anyone who wants to do some work here. Find your niche. Do something you enjoy. But we offer no perspective. And there is no compensation. We want to make sure that those who come here find their own compensation. That's all we can offer. So the people who work here are inherently strongly motivated. There's no other way. When you talk to them, you learn that what they are actually trying to do 
is to live their lives according to their own insights while getting as little hassle as possible from the social security people who send them money. And it's not because they're fraudulent or lazy or trying to live of social security. It's because there are no jobs for them. Omdat er geen banen zijn. How do we deal with the disappearance of job opportunities? Can we create new jobs or must we reinvent ourselves? Michael Bormeyer and his colleague, both from Germany, are in New York to introduce their basic income project overseas. Albert Wenger, born in Germany, is a major startup investor in New York. He's interested in the impact of technology on society and regards the current shift in the meaning of labor as an opportunity to rethink the system. One of the things that self-perpetuates the existing system, the system that just says, well, you have to work in order to make money. Why do you need to make money in order to afford these things? And once you've bought them, you're still not happy, so you have to work more. And so uh, even people who have jobs are on these incredible treadmills where they're working longer hours and more than ever before. So I think it's creating the best way to get away from that is to create an alternative somewhere else. And then people can slowly for themselves decide that that's where they want to be, where, where they'd rather be. Albert Wenger invests in automation. Twitter and Kickstarter are a couple of the big names in his portfolio. His TEDx talk on automation and basic income unleashed a lively debate in the investment industry. That's our idea. Um, maybe sometimes I have to switch to German. And uh, maybe in this case, um, via... We reflect a lot. Johannes has a philosophy degree. We keep our eyes on the big picture. And we see two words colliding in the political arena. One is the system. The other is the individual. The individual tends to blame the system. This is, it is a left-wing response. The bad system is the problem, and the system says, you're lazy, you don't work, but still get a basic income. There's growing hatred on both sides. Everyone is stuck and nothing happens. We aim to find the point of leverage in all these conflicts, the sweet spot, the common ground. So where is the interface in the basic income? Where is the common ground? A recent article in Die Zeit explained it very clearly. A monthly deposit of 1,000 euros. That's where the person in the system in terms of basic income. I love the fact that you guys are just doing it, you know, because I think that is sort of the most important thing. A lot of why we invest in the Internet and Internet startups is because one of the things that the Internet allows you to do is to do things without asking for permission. So we call it permissionless innovation. So we tend to invest in this idea of permissionless innovation of things that operate on the Internet and create kind of new networks uh, that's sort of central to our investing thesis is sort of the creation of new networks whether that's uh, marketplaces like Etsy or um, crowdfunding like Kickstarter 
And the thing that I've become convinced uh, of is that I think we're sort of at the beginning of a transition that is as profound as going from hunter-gatherers to agriculture and then from agriculture to industrial mm -hmm. society. Uh, and the thing that I'm most fascinated by is this idea that before we became agrarians, we in a way lived in a state of abundance. So if you look at the hunter-gatherer societies, they worked like three hours a day and they were pretty happy and they shared everything. Uh, and then it was only... Through this agrarian industrial age, that we kind of organized everything around the idea of scarcity, and it's scarce, and you know you have to work, and you have to work hard and harder, um, and so now the thing I'm fascinated by is that I think we can get back to a new form of abundance through digital technologies, which is why I think that digital technology, the internet, and this idea of things like basic income are are yeah. strongly tied together. We managed to get quite a lot of money through crowdfunding. The first campaign yielded 60 to 70,000 euros, but that's not enough. We wanted to grow. That's why, from day one, we tried to take this basic income. We aimed for out of the economic system and implement our tools. We tried to achieve our goals almost by hacking them, to put it negatively. We installed this crowdbar. It was a relatively simple. The toolbar appears as soon as you enter the site. It's passive advertising, not active. It's up to you whether you enter the vet or not. People love it. It's wildly popular. 12,000 people have installed it. We get 200 euros a day towards a basic income. I love that. There's several things I love about what you're doing. One is I love the idea of figuring out how this becomes something that is easily self-sustaining, that scales, that doesn't rely just on people continuing to give money, but that is embedded in people's daily lives. So I think that's really, really critically important. What can I do to help? I mean, I've sent some money, so I, I'm going to contribute to one of the basic incomes. But what other things do you think I can do to help? Mm. And I can send more money, too. That's one thing. But what, what are the things you think you most need? Does social innovation belong with governments, or can we now suddenly... I think we can innovate. Uh, we can have social innovation. Crowdfunding, we're investors in Kickstarter. Crowdfunding is a social innovation. It lets artists, uh, creative people, uh, even products be funded uh, in a completely new mechanism, and that's a social innovation. Uh, I would argue that a lot of what's happening with online education is a form of social innovation because it's making education easily accessible, often for free or for very low cost, that previously would have cost thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. That's a form of social innovation. I don't think we need to wait for somebody in Washington, D.C. to decide that this is something that needs to happen, or Berlin or wherever the seat of your respective government may be. I think these are things we can start to work on just as we are today. Because you are busy with digital innovation, do you feel personally responsible? Some people have said, well, you just say this so you can happily invest in automation. Um, 
But my view is we should happily want to invest in automation as humanity. I'm a believer that automation will provide us with the ability to have vast improvements in productivity, to make a high standard of living available to everybody, to make access to information, free education, free healthcare available to everybody. So I believe in automation. We don't want to somehow clamp down on it. But we have to then address what the consequences for individuals are from that degree of automation. And that, I believe, is best solved by just putting everybody uh, on a safe floor. And that's what kind of a basic income guarantee provides. It provides a floor, a floor that allows people to afford food, shelter, clothing, access to the internet. How do we afford basic income? Well. One of the things that technology does is it actually makes everything cheaper. In the U.S., since the mid-1990s, consumer durables have actually already been getting cheaper. The only thing that's been getting more expensive are services, and within services, it's been primarily education and healthcare. Technology is also making those cheaper. But we have, the economy is producing this. It's not a question of, can we afford this? It's just a question of, do we want to afford it? I think it should be very attractive to people on the right who believe in smaller government, who believe in individual self-sufficiency. I also think it should be completely attractive to people historically on the left who believe in redistribution. This is a very overt redistribution, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. Government is already in the business of redistribution. We're just being very coy about it, and I think this is simply saying some people are going to make a lot of money. We will tax them, or some other, we can tax other things that are making money, and we're going to take that money to provide this basic income, this basic enabler for everybody. One of the main reasons why small-scale experiments are not translated into general policies is issues of affordability. How can we redistribute our financial resources? Alaska has a 30-year-old fund built up with oil revenues. All residents of Alaska receive an annual dividend. This turned Alaska from a poor state with major inequality issues into the state with the lowest poverty and inequality statistics in the USA. Every resident of the state of Alaska gets a dividend check, and you have to be here for a calendar year before you are able to apply for a dividend. So this year, I think we got 18 I think $1,800, you know, per, so, you know, times four, it becomes, you know, quite a bit of money. In the past, you know, we've had uh, much smaller checks, might be $800, you know, a check, so, you know, $3,500 or $4,000, so it, it just varies. We have a very varied uh, source of income, and we uh, still do a little bit of commercial fishing um, for salmon. We also have a snow removal business when we have snowy winters, and we also have a, a restaurant supply business um, in which we supply restaurants with the type of wood that they use for smoking ovens and things like that. Very seasonal, as is now since we have the warmest winter on record and it's raining in February and we have green grass, there's no snow to plow. So that's been a very, a fairly substantial uh, reduction in what we kind of, you know, roughly, you know, um, base our income on for the year. 
I don't think the dividend is enough or regular enough to be a source of income from the state of Alaska. It coming once a year and at the most being, you know, maybe $2,000, sometimes being only $800. You couldn't depend on that. But as a parent saving for your child's education, if you save whatever you get for 18 years, that's enough to make a difference in a child's life and their future. The Alaskans are very proud of their Alaska Permanent Fund. This revolutionary idea was introduced by Republican Governor Jay Hammond in close cooperation with former Senator Clem Tillian. Oil revenues are deposited in the fund and kept safe for future generations. And Hammond was just a United States Marine fighter pilot in the yeah, Second World no War, fighting the Japanese Zeros. Oh no, there was he wasn't no a warrior. fear in Hammond. Uh, it's just that he couldn't be rough on people that needed to be rough. Uh. Hey, what's the philosophy behind the fund? The philosophy of it is the resources belong to the people, and therefore you should run it like a company. But we are the only land-grant state in the United States. We're the only one that were given 100 million acres to pick anywhere we wanted to pick. And that was what we had to uh, support our government on. In Texas, the oil belongs to the rancher. Here, the oil belongs to the people. Now this gray-bearded old guy in a suit, Jay Hammond. Uh, but the thing is that most of the pictures that I had with Jay, uh, you can find them in the historical library and stuff, but remember I had a fire in 1980 and I lost all of everything. When I found out that we we're only getting 1% for oil, uh, I set out with a, a great mixture, and it wasn't one single party. There were Democrats, Republicans, but it was nearly all the young Turks. You know, the socialists wanted it because they believed that everything ought to belong to private, and I don't believe that way. I'm kind of fairly right-wing. Uh, uh, but I do believe that in this case, where we were given the oil, that I was now the representative of the owners of that oil. So we ended up with 12.5% royalty and up to 20% taxes to pay for the roads and the things that went in it. And uh, we are converting our re non-renewable resource to a renewable. And we have about uh, $50 billion now. Uh, we should have had $480 billion if we'd put everything in. Now, I was involved in forming the permanent fund, which he was supportive of, but what he saw was the next step. How do you disperse it? Here in Alaska, we have a constitution which is set up an investment account funded with a portion of our oil wealth which would spin off dividends. I wanted to create a stock sharing concept and actually give people a share of dividend earning stock per year. To date, we have a program which each year sends a check to each and every Alaskan. 
it has worked very well. And it, it is also a way of dispersing money without welfare. Do you see a link between the dividend and the basic income guarantee idea? The idea of giving unconditional money to citizens in a way that makes them equal? Not I, you know, it's, uh, uh, that's the socialist dream. I'm not a socialist. So something we did with our dividend checks is we um, used them for building a small schoolhouse on our property here so I could homeschool our girls. Haven't been out here for about a year. I had two girls, and um, I homeschooled for 13 years, and it was really nice to have a separate building. I know a lot of people homeschool in their own home, but because my older daughter was uh, such a artist and liked to do things and we liked to travel, it, the homeschooling seemed like a good choice for us to have the flexibility and to have that extra money, to have that extra space made her education all the better. And she's been on the dean's list continually for two years at college, so <laughs> it was a good investment. If the dividends are coming in, that's when the museum will have their fundraiser. That's when things kind of happen. And it, 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 yes, it comes to the individual, but so many individuals make a community, and then it goes back into the community. And I think that it's, it's important not just for people who need the basics, but it's also important to the community for the, the income that does come in. We're still building our home. We live in a dry cabin where we haul water, and, and it's a pretty rough life, and we're building out of pocket. So the money has to come from somewhere, and those chunks of change, I may get running water this year. It's on the docket. <laughs> we're hoping. Well, people spend it however they want. It's uh, a democratic choice, I guess, what you want to do with it. And I suppose there must be a crab fisherman someplace that drinks it up when he doesn't catch any crab, but I don't know this person. Is it just another form of redistribution? Well, it's obvious. It's a pre-distribution before it gets into the hands of people that are going to distribute for the ordinary political purposes. It gets, um, part of it gets stopped and sent directly to every man, woman, and child in the state. I wouldn't say it was given, it's taken before it gets to the government coffers. It has a really good effect in that it keeps people at least somewhat interested in the operations of government. And any time there's a proposal to uh, get into the permanent fund and spend it to make up for deficits in the state budget, people rise up in defense. And it's been on the ballot a couple of times, and I think the response was... 87% did not want a single penny from the permanent fund to be spent for anything except its already uh, approved purposes, which is not all paying dividends. It does other things as well. Dividends, yes, well, it's, uh, as the inventor said, they thought that greed is a legitimate human emotion and that by appealing to people's greed, you could protect this for future generations. It's in the book. So the dividend is this? The dividend is a way to appeal to people's greed? Yes, to protect the fund. So no disrespect to people who need a guaranteed income, but 
That's really not ex- what we were up to deliberately. The Alaskan model has been a beacon of sense in the search for new ideas on distribution. If all the residents of Alaska receive a dividend from oil revenues, shouldn't all South Africans get a dividend from the diamonds and the people of Groningen from the gas? Now, I think that's a very thought-provoking question on which to end the video and a helpful line of reasoning if you're explaining to somebody whose first instinct is, well, nice idea, but we just don't have the money. Actually, none of the real world's problems are directly due to money. We may find we face these problems because money exerts an impact on people's thinking For example, it makes people more selfish. That selfish behavior may manifest and create problems for the real world. Money is working in the modern world as a kind of a pump from the bottom 80-odd percent of society who pay money in aggregate to banks, interest and overdraft fees and so on. And the beneficiaries in the main are the top 1%. Obviously, the top 0.01% gain a lot more. It's very, very polarized. Now, it's easy to see why there's a large amount of theory about why this is a good thing, and that's why we talk about we have to keep growing the economy and so on. I think a dispassionate analysis would come to the conclusion that, as Guy Standing suggests, decoupling people's survival, people's food and shelter from this economic treadmill would be good for the majority of humanity and perhaps all of humanity. I mean, another point that this film hasn't taken up is the trap of the 0.001% surrounded by people of a similar economic status. These people are also trapped by this system that shapes their expectations and their behaviours and focuses on selfish maximisation. This is the expected behaviour and this is what is called success I'm keen to try and avoid these sort of enemy images, as Marshall Rosenberg stated. These are people who have contrasting experiences with the 99%. Some of them have consciences, some of them are psychopaths. And that doesn't necessarily mean we can't, as 100%, work out a better way to be. As humans, we do have pretty much identical needs in terms of food and shelter and so on. And materially, I can see no reason why people should go without houses and go without food and so on. Ah, Humans have a need not to be under chronic stress or they get sick and die. So that isn't only about material goods. The 1% may not have that stress. They have other stresses, such as they're worried about the world economy or preference shares or whatever else. And the appeal of a solution for the 100%, a way of living that by design doesn't put people under chronic stress is something that I think we must not underestimate to the 99% and the 1%. And a basic income would not solve all the problems of the money system, but by decreasing a lot of people's existential stress, increasing their health, giving them time to do things outside the money system, I think it would be a step in the right direction. And as such, it would also be an admission that, yes, capitalism has achieved some things. 
universal security and peace and happiness is very unlikely to come about under a capitalist system. So if that's what we're aiming at, then let's start to explore the alternatives. The program doesn't explore the idea that if we had a basic income for every man, woman and child on the planet, would the money system actually continue to function for very long? That's an open question, but I suspect probably not. The money system is, after all, working in tandem with this if you shall not work for pay, you shall not eat system of blackmail to try to subvert people's natural and I think healthy instincts to make their own decisions about what they do in life, to try to subvert their will to the will of a tiny cabal who run the world's money system. I call it one system. I think the differences between national governments and national currencies are smaller than their similarities. And of course, you know, there's things like the Bank of International Settlements, where the central bankers meet and they plan to do things such as inflate the world currencies in concert to hide the fact that these bailouts are basically a global theft that's carried out in broad daylight. And I thought, how can I close this program? It's been a bit of a ramble, but it's been uh, what's on my mind to share with you. These are some of the thoughts which I thought, well, I've had these growing in my mind for a long time, and I haven't perhaps clearly put them together in one place. I have emphasized the economic aspect because that's very clear to me, perhaps because I've lived in a range of countries and traveling back from Britain to Bangladesh, I've noticed even on my own behavior in one country, I feel like a rich person. In one country, I feel like a poor person. Just that contrast has helped me to see how much of a fiction money actually is. I, I'd like feedback. I'd really love uh, if you'd let me know what you thought of this show, because I don't do a lot of public speaking and I don't write books and mostly I limit my contributions on the show to illustrating why I've chosen particular pieces or highlighting connections with other episodes that we've had on the show. I've kind of ad-libbed this program based on Illich's doubts about social power. So let's hear the original quote. This is from Unwelcome Guests, episode 523. I think this was a set of interviews from about 2001 with David Cayley. Twenty years ago, even ten years ago still, particularly twenty years ago, among the people with whom I usually deal, it's of course a very peculiar type of people, it was impossible to question that their responsibility for those children whom they saw in the ads of the Children's Fund with hunger blown up bellies were their responsibility. They were scandalized when I talked to them about responsibility being the soft underbelly of fantasies of, about power. That the responsibility they felt was a way of justifying their sense that it, because they were from a rich country, we have some power to plan, to organize, to change the rest of the world. 
this responsibility, this ugly justification of blown-up power fantasies, is something about which, from experience I know this, during the last few years, I can make people laugh. Laugh about themselves when they fell into this trap. A new sense of impotence is around. The future, which seems something appropriable in terms of planning, designing, policy making, the very idea of policy making and policy execution, is receding very fast. It finds still expression with U.S. bombing Milosevic or Gaddafi or uh, Iraq into a recognition of human rights of its own citizens. It still nourishes the new book by Rostov about the need of maintaining American police power worldwide as a condition for the survival of democracy. But the people who speak to me, different from those who spoke to me of the way they spoke to me 20 years ago, do recognize that there is a fallacy, that the world in, which, in front of which they stand, not the future world, but the present world, is built on assumptions for which we haven't found the appropriate names yet. I speak with people who are beginning to understand that the language about the organization of power prevalent between 50 and 80 has no hold on reality anymore. And no matter if they are people who come from an attempted philosophy of power structure, let me say Michel Foucault, or if they come from the Rostov corner. When 25 years ago, to his face, to, 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 with people, I argued that in spite of my great admiration, Foucault assumed the existence of something, namely power, along the lines along which, after 1840, the idea of energy was socially constructed for the physical world, and power being something metaphorically corresponding in the social domain, people considered me evil, David. The recognition that we cannot help but renounce power, not because of a Gandhian or Christian spirit of renunciation to violence, but because the power which we sought 10 or 20 years ago reveals its own void, its own illusory characteristics. This new feeling of impotence, of a void where the power to change the world was once thought to be, is for Illich the characteristic experience of the new age. The world now confronts us as something unmanageable, as a complex, chaotic system of which we can never form a comprehensive view because we are inscribed within it. Such a world, Illich believes, gives rise to strange compensatory fantasies and reassuring rain dances which hide our helplessness. 
we dream of a return to earth, a rebirth of mother nature, of ethical capitalism and global citizenship. But these fantasies, he says, only distract us from our fundamental powerlessness. Illich suggests a different path, a return to what he calls conspiratio. The conspiratio was the kiss by which the early Christian communities mingled their spirits and sealed their communion with one another. It was practiced at a time when Christians still sought to imitate their Lord's absolute refusal of power, a time when the Church had not yet made itself into the prototype of the modern state. To Illich, it symbolizes the way of love without power, free, self-giving love that meets no need and expects no guarantee, the love that stirred in the Samaritan's belly when he saw that half-dead man lying by the road. This way, Illich says, has reopened, as the modern project of underwriting love with power has failed, and the modern institutions in which this project was embodied have ceased to inspire faith. The credibility of the world constructed, of the idea of citizenship, of responsibility, of power, of equality, of need, claim, and entitlement. The credibility of these as ideals for which it is worthwhile to consecrate your life is declining, in my opinion, very fast. Most people see this as a serious danger, which it is, to the survival of a democratic order. I want to suggest the possibility of seeing it at the end of an epoch, just like the Roman Empire, as a time of Augustine, and as an entirely new access, credibility, ease of moving into the world of conspiratio, knowing that it can't be contractually assured, insured. A renunciation to insure. previous episodes of Unwelcome Guests are available for download from our MP3 archive at unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. If you'd like to get more involved in the show, you can join the mailing list at altruists.org slash unwelcome. Now, thanks to Patricia, who emailed me a couple of days back. Uh, she asked me, can I get your podcast on iTunes or Pocket Cast? I know nothing about iTunes or Pocket Cast. This is produced as a bunch of MP3s. We do also have an RSS feed and an Atom feed, both of which are created programmatically, so they should be updated whenever the website is updated. If that's enough information for anyone out there to put us onto Pocket Cast, or iTunes or anywhere else then feel free you've got my blessing to spread this information this show is an open source production uh, if you'd like to discuss collaboration how you can help spread this message if you'd like this included in some kind of compilation or whatever else you can email me unwelcome at unwelcomeguests.net and of course I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode or suggestions for future episodes. Just like